welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. So today's episode on the Addiction Connection is a little different than we'd planned. And you can probably imagine that an addiction podcast was going to start with addiction as a disease, which was our initial plan. But in view of the pandemic, our number one episode is going to be about critically ill and hospitalized patients who have substance use disorder. And this episode, just like every other episode to come, it's important to realize that everything will be completely raw and unedited. You can see how we truly think and talk about these issues. So let's get moving. I think the important thing about hospitalized patients at this point is we still have to understand that they are going to have some issues of addiction that are going to be uh, coming to light as they are hospitalized. And so we're going to go through some of the different uh, substances and most common things that you might encounter. So let's start with alcohol. And I think just general statistics on alcohol, we want to understand that there's really a lifetime prevalence that's nearly 20%, and it's uh, one of the most widely used and, and abused things really in the world. If you look at hospitalized patients in general, probably 40% of these are going to have some level of alcohol use disorder, and uh, probably up to 40% of the time also uh, they may be inpatients because of an alcohol-related condition. So important to understand that those patients are going to present uh, now with infection and still have these issues. Remember that about a, about a third of all patients admitted to an ICU have a history of excessive alcohol use. And so that's just something that we always have to keep in mind as these patients come in for other uh, reasons. And when you combine that alcohol with other drug use and you're looking at things that come into emergency departments, realize that alcohol and drugs combined reach up to 70% of all trauma admissions. So not necessarily exactly pertinent to the, to the health um, epidemic right now, but in terms of trauma, alcohol, and then tobacco combined um, and other drugs will make up a lot of your trauma proportion. So also we've got to think about cigarettes. And I think often we we all think about how cigarettes make us much more uh, susceptible to infections, especially respiratory infections. We're going to see that as well with this uh, pandemic. And nicotine, of course, being one of the main addictions in the entire world, and obviously frequently co-occurrent with alcohol and drug use, uh, especially a high percentage of opioid users uh, also smoke. Uh, that's something that, that you have to keep in mind uh, when you look at nicotine and depression and anxiety disorders, again, high co-occurrence. And one of the things that, that's going to occur because of that is this increased agitation that we might see in the ICU uh, for patients. Uh, it's it's interesting that when you look at that, that agitation is probably much more common, almost twice as common in patients who smoke in the ICU. And they're two to four times a higher risk of really having uh, other pneumonias in general. And so when we look at pneumococcal pneumonias and smoking, it's much higher risk of that. I think influenza has always been the thing that we see. And, uh, of course, the smokers tend to have much worse uh, courses of influenza uh, which I think is uh, something we all have seen. And remember that we have more than 10% of our population is actually daily smokers. So this is something that we're going to see frequently in the ICU. 
And remember that uh, probably in the ICU, these patients who smoke also are a higher percentage of the patients actually in the ICU, almost at, at times up to 50%. And when you look at uh, people who smoke in the ICU in several journal articles, but there's one um, just out of an intensive care journal from just 2018 that they did compare smokers to non-smokers and just the high-risk things, sepsis more common in smokers, deaths during their hospitalization more common in smokers, ICU admissions far more common. 70% of patients that were admitted to the ICU were smokers versus 53% non-smokers. People who needed ventilators, people who needed vasopressor, so to keep your blood pressure up. Um, these are all strikingly much more common in people who smoke, which especially when you're looking at the coronavirus and, and contracting COVID, you know, these are things that we're going to have issues with um, in our healthcare system. And of course, something that we speak about a lot, which is uh, opioids, is also something that may cause some issues in our ICUs and some of these patients who develop coronavirus. Uh, really, when you look at patients who are on chronic pain medications, that's probably 3 to 4% of our adult population. Uh, and again, these are higher risk people who may end up in our ICUs. Probably only about 0.2% of, of the U.S. population using heroin. And, of course, we we have no idea how many people may be using opioids uh, off and on that are uh, diverted. Uh, I think those um, those numbers are probably a little less clear. And I think with that, though, Kurt, is that only 0.2% might use heroin, but as we'll talk about in a little bit, they might have some much more higher-risk behaviors or other health concerns, other infections or other things that make them much more susceptible to getting more severe illness. And. And one of the things we always have to keep in mind is that, you know, really about 25% of substance use patients uh, are in treatment and receive methadone. And methadone, of course, can be a, a little bit of a, a difficulty in that it does not, uh, it's sometimes not divulged by the patient that they're on methadone or they may come in unable to tell you they're on methadone. So uh, again, opioids are something that we need to be very, uh, very cognizant of uh, as patients come into our, into our hospitals. And that just kind of transitions well into the other barriers and why aren't substance use disorders recognized when people are admitted, especially in um, ICUs or in uh, critically ill situations. Sometimes the patients are just far too ill to even give a history. If they're innovated, they can't tell you what's going on. Some patients are embarrassed or just don't want to tell you. And if they don't tell you they have a history of alcohol abuse, then they end up in an ICU and then they start having alcohol withdrawal. This is obviously a very um, scary and different situation. Sometimes patients actually don't even realize they necessarily have a use disorder. And if they're not able to talk for themselves and their family is there, the family might not realize that they have an issue. The family might downplay it because they're embarrassed by the issue. It might not be in the chart. And then even sometimes what happens is providers are not even asking these patients if they have issues. So it's just that one whole... uh, elephant in the room that people aren't even asking about or talking about. Um, And then, as you mentioned with the methadone, especially if they're at methadone clinics, OTP clinics, it's not on the PMP. Let's talk a little bit about alcohol. Well, I think it's it's been something that people have recognized for over 100 years. And actually, uh, William Osler, uh, really back in 1899, had noticed very uh, often that alcohol abuse was a very important predisposing factor for pneumonia. And I think that that's, uh, that's really something that's just gone on uh, for years and years. Uh, there's lots of different reason why, reasons why this occurs. Yeah, and people who smoke not only is, or smoke and drink, or not only is this drinking as a predisposition to ammonia, but people who drink also tend to have 
poor nutrition, poor access to health care. They're less likely to access health care. Um, they might have other mental health issues. Again, like I mentioned, the smoking also there. And then as we mentioned at the beginning, they have higher trauma or violent um, type conditions related to their alcohol. So they do tend to have um, a little bit more extreme things when presenting. And then if you think about these patients as they come into our hospitals and they're having uh, other issues, respiratory issues, maybe because of this virus uh, and the pandemic, they have underlying problems already. They have liver disease, they have pancreatic dysfunction, their bone marrow is certainly not as responsive, and they may have ongoing other cardiac issues, cardiomyopathies, hypertension. Uh, they may have undiagnosed uh, previously AFib. And of course, uh, you know, I think there's just so many things that uh, can be a part of uh, alcohol use, uh, even uh, some renal dysfunction and electrolyte abnormality. So they do sometimes present already with issues uh, that are going to need to be addressed. And part of how this happens is a person who drinks a lot can have different um, bacteria in their mouths. We all have bacteria in our mouths, but the types of bacteria can differ. And the organisms that patients who drink a lot of alcohol um, get tend to be more these gram-negative harder to treat um, and much more um, pathogenic organisms in the mouth. And then when the airway itself, they tend to have a little bit less ability for the airway to respond to protect itself so they can get more aspiration, pneumonias, just more aspiration. The things in the lungs that are meant to clear out infection don't work as well. And then just in general, the whole immune system is definitely blunted, making it much harder for them to naturally fight infections. Yeah, and I think what that leads to is uh, really that that these, there's that predisposition right away that uh, patients with alcohol use disorder uh, are going to have a higher need for mechanical ventilation as time goes on during their hospitalization, and that's just something that we're going to have to recognize right away. Uh, it's really an independent risk factor for the development of sepsis as well, uh, so these patients, you have to be uh, surveilling them very closely. And uh, and I think that if you look at ARDS, uh, they probably have about a two to four times higher risk of that than the average patient coming into your uh, ICU. Um, and again, when you look at independent risk factors for the development of uh, community-acquired pneumonia, uh, I think that it's that higher acuity patients, increased hospitalizations, uh, their longer their longer hospital uh, visits for these patients, and again some uh, um, some of this is uh, I think things we already know, but I think it's something again we need to as we need not just focus on the infection, but sometimes these predisposing things. Why don't you uh, explain some other things that people who have alcohol and and have alcohol withdrawal might notice in the hospitalization that's aside from the infection itself, just that's more alcohol related. Well. I think that, uh, you know, we have to understand that these patients are going to withdraw, and about 5% of patients with AUDs are going to withdraw during their hospitalization. Again, DTs is some is occasionally fatal, so I think we need to be uh, thinking about that. And we need to anticipate these things. It's just hard if you get behind uh, in what you're doing. You need to be proactive in, in watching these patients very closely. I think one of the most difficult parts, and and although I don't do much hospital medicine now, when I was doing a lot of hospital medication or hospital uh, treatment, alcohol withdrawal signs can sometimes be mixed with other health issues, and it'll be difficult to tell exactly what's going on if they're hallucinating, uh, if their heart rates are high or low, or their blood pressures are changing. Uh, and of course, if they're intubated uh, and nonverbal, it can be very difficult to, to sort out exactly what the causes are. So when you're admitting a patient, just things to be aware of right up front. Obviously, if they have a history of alcohol use disorder, if you can get that history, that's 
hugely important in that anticipation. Different lab work you might notice on, a, on a, an admission would be an elevated GGT, which can be elevated uh, in alcohol use disorder, but also in many other things. So if you're looking at that combined with the MCV, together should raise your suspicion that a person might have alcohol use disorder. Other things you can look at or order on patients you have a high suspicion for would be the CDT, the carbohydrate deficient transferrin. Um, that being elevated, significantly elevated, is pretty equivalent to a person drinking four to seven drinks a day for at least a week. So it's almost like the A1C for, for alcohol use disorder. You can look at things like their bilirubin, their INR, the AST-ALT ratio, ethylene glycol, ethylene sulfate, just other labs. And then on a physical exam, do they have a tremor? Does their liver enlarge? Do they have obvious ascites? Do they smell like alcohol? But some of these more subtle physical findings you might not even be thinking of, especially if they're in um, a very ill state. And if you, uh, you know, if you don't look, you're not going to see it. And so again, a close evaluation for these patients. So let's switch over and talk a little bit about how tobacco may affect your hospitalization. Again, one of the things when you look at predisposition, you know, we all again we know that tobacco. Uh, gives us those higher rates of respiratory infections and worse infections. It's that ciliary function. That's easy for me to say. Easy for you to say. Uh, And mucus volume that increases when people smoke. They they have that humoral response to antigens. It's a bit altered. And uh, there's just lots of different things that can go on in the lungs when people are smoking, that whole host defense system that can be changed. And as you mentioned before, you know, they have these infections, and then if they end up in the ICU, they do have much more agitation we're looking at just agitation uh, numbers, 64% of patients uh, who have agitation are smokers compared to 32% that aren't. So it's twice as much agitation is related just to that nicotine, um, potential nicotine withdrawal or tobacco use. Um, and with the agitation, it creates a whole host of other issues, removing tubes, catheters, more restraints, needing higher medications of sedatives, uh, neuroleptics. And so that might make you think, well, what should we do? Should we give them nicotine replacement? Because this is a pretty easy thing and pretty common thing people can do. Um, And so when you compared uh, nicotine replacement, patients who did get nicotine replacement did have much less agitation and delirium and morbidity. Not necessarily changes in mortality, but it can definitely impact that agitation. So let's just look just in a general way at substance use disorders, and I think how they predispose you to other complications during your hospital stay. A lot of the patients that we see, especially if they're IV drug users, uh, these patients can come in with infections on top of a respiratory illness that might have brought them uh, to the hospital with shortness of breath. And they may have soft tissue infections. Uh, Again, endocarditis is something we see with some regularity. Uh, and, and, of course, hepatitis and HIV, these can all predispose them to much more complicated hospitalizations. And, again, often these patients also co-use. So they may also smoke. They may, they may drink a fair amount of alcohol, use other drugs that may complicate their, uh, their presentation. And as we kind of alluded to before, just other insecurities in their lives. Do they, do they get healthy, safe food? Do they have healthy, uh, supportive housing and support systems, insurance. And then sometimes these patients don't present until the bitter end because they have issues with legal things, child protection, warrants. Um, So they have this whole host of things. And then even at hospital discharge, you have to really think about that. Where are these patients going? And do they have a safe, um, protected, healthy environment to go home to? And of course, uh, sometimes it's very obvious what's going on with patients in this group. And 
you know, they may, they may smell of marijuana. They may have murmurs. You may see injection sites. I think we always look at people's pupils uh, uh, to kind of give us a clue what they might have ingested. And, and, of course, respiratory status. Often we're looking at what's happened to a patient's weight over time to give us a clue of whether or not they might be somebody we would worry about a substance use. So uh, lots of different physical findings that can give us that clue. And with that, it's important to not only think, again, about heroin or the illicits, Three types of patients end up in the hospital, ones who are on chronic long-term opioids, who are taking their medications appropriately, but you need to be aware of that so you don't stop that and throw them into withdrawal. You might have patients who are on MAT, buprenorphine, or methadone um, who are doing well and they end up in the hospital. You need to be aware of them because they're going to need to be treated a little bit differently. And then you have patients who might not have a diagnosed opioid use disorder who are now going to go into withdrawal fairly quickly and have that um, set up in your clinic already or in your hospital already to be able to treat them. So, of course, it's always important to ask those nonjudgmental questions. Consider asking about opioid use um, in the medication history rather than in the social history and making sure liver, uh, liver functions, hepatitis, uh, status is getting done in urine drug screens, especially, um, and not to forget that fentanyl uh, and tramadol are not on most urine drug screening. So if you're worried about those things, to really get those confirmatory urine tests. And so it's important to understand that when these patients present, it's a lot of times not planned pretty obviously. And so it's that interruption of their typical use of a, of a uh, drug that is going to cause that withdrawal. And I think that often, you know, even when we see our patients who are on chronic pain medications, remembering that uh, we need to either continue those, and in fact, they might need more if they're having discomfort. Often the patients that we put on ventilators will also receive medications that even if they're only on them four or five days, they may have symptoms of withdrawal as they come off of those. So again, I think it's it's being vigilant as we as we watch these patients. Uh, and also just remembering that patients are already on MAT coming in, that that does need to be uh, continued and uh, hospitals can prescribe that without a waiver. So it's important that that continues. Absolutely. So just kind of final other thoughts you know, during this this current pandemic and other things to be aware of that hopefully we can have another podcast soon on how to handle patients who are stable on MAT or for new patients who need to get started on MAT, buprenorphine, um, how to handle this so they're not out and about, um, whether e-visits, telehealth, take-homes, refills, you're in drug screens. Hopefully uh, soon we'll be able to get something out there for you uh, to educate you on how to handle this um, going forward. Yeah, and I think just uh, kind of a couple final thoughts is uh, uh, so many businesses are closed down. So many things are, have changed in the last week. Understand that some of the patients who may have been using different substances, whether it's alcohol or it's whether it's heroin, they may have an interrupted um, their interrupted uh, uh, ability to get that. Whether it's financial, whether it's uh, travel, ability to travel, and so we have to expect that we're going to see more patients potentially uh, withdrawing in our ERs who don't have uh, you know the the coronavirus that's going around, but. Just keep that in mind, that we're looking at something that's really not happened for a long, long time, and we need to be really vigilant in looking for these patients and making sure they get care both outside and inside the hospital. Well, I'm just going to piggyback on that really quickly, and that's also true for alcohol. You know, if liquor stores are shut down at any point, um, bars are already shut down, patients can't get access to alcohol and they have a significant alcohol use disorder, we're going to have significant alcohol withdrawal, even if they're not ill, but they're going to be coming in with withdrawal seizures potentially. 
All right. Well, I guess that will be the end of podcast number one. We thank you for listening and uh, podcast number two to be out soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.